Well, take your Bible this morning and go back to 1 John. 1 John, if you're visiting with us this morning, maybe you've been brought by, maybe your kids were singing, we're so glad that you're with us. We are teaching and expositing the scripture verse by verse through the epistle of John written by the Apostle John and written for this purpose that you may know you have eternal life. That's why he wrote. There's other statements in there, but one of the reasons in 1 John 5.13 is he says that I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So one of the fundamental truths of Christianity is the fact that we can have assurance of our salvation. That God in the scripture does not want us to walk through life fearing our future and fearing what that future would look like. In fact, when you think about the doctrine of Christian assurance, assurance is this. It's the belief that you you have right now a right standing with God and that that standing will issue an ultimate salvation. You have assurance. You can walk around with peace. You could walk around with joy. Of course, not everybody believes that. If you're Roman Catholic this morning and you're visiting, I don't mean to in any way be offensive, but they do not affirm the doctrine of assurance in any way. Um, For example, in their decrees on the doctrine of justification, in one of their writings under the Council of Trent, in the sixth session, chapter 9, They say this, that it is not to be said that sins are forgiven or have been forgiven to anyone who boasts of his confidence and certainty of the remission of his sins, end of quotes. In other words, while we can know with certainty that God does forgive sin, they would teach out of their scripture that no individual can say with any settled certainty, my sins are forgiven. In fact, the Council of Trent, Roman Catholic document, concluded this, quote, No one can know with a certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. End of quote. That is why when you... Talk to someone who is Catholic. If you were to ask them that question, can you know, they would say, oh, you'll never know until you get where? To heaven. And then when you get there, they're going to put in a system of works, depending on what you've done, depending on the merit you've gained, and so forth. But as we talk about Christian assurance, we're just recognizing that the Word of God says, I write these things to you that you may know you have eternal life. In fact, the truth is, is that Scripture everywhere commends and encourages assurance. And nowhere are we taught to live in a state of perpetual doubt about our standing before God. I mean, one of the reasons I get so fired up about this is I would hate for you to live the way I lived as a teenager. Always in fear. Always in doubt, never certain, always wondering if the thunder of God's judgment would strike me and if I wasn't ready, what would happen? And of course, 
this scripture came into me as a young man, and I realized, in fact, I shared that before, as I thought on this scripture, I thought, that is not me. I do not know I have eternal life. And God used that scripture amongst others to convert me. Spurgeon said this about full assurance, and that wasn't Isaac. This is the real Spurgeon now. Where's Isaac? Man, that was good though, man. You, man, you were going. It was good. But Spurgeon said this. He said, full assurance is not essential to salvation, but it is essential to satisfaction. May you get it, Spurgeon said. And may you get it at once, at any rate, may you never be satisfied to live without it. And You know, this is important. Now, you'll understand Spurgeon said it's not essential to salvation. In other words, you could be saved here this morning, really, truly saved, and not live in the assurance, right? And you could live miserable and die and go to heaven, really assured then, but you might not be walking in it now. So Spurgeon said it's not essential to salvation, full assurance, but it is essential to satisfaction because God wants us to have joy. Now, John here writes this epistle not for the purpose of creating doubt, but he writes for the purpose of promoting assurance. And we've been looking in chapter 1, verse 5, all the way down through 2.11, looking at five affirmations to know that you are in fellowship with God and have assurance of your salvation. Here's the distinguishing marks. And this is review. We don't need to look long. All of this is on the website. But true fellowship, number one, involves walking in the light, that you're moving towards truth and light and holiness and purity. We noted that secondly, true fellowship is confessing our sin, far from feeling that we've arrived. A true Christian, far from thinking that they've made it or they've arrived, a true Christian is ever confessing one's sin. Thirdly, we noted there in 1.9 through 2.1, we have to recognize our sin. The one who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. And then we look fourthly at chapter 2, that true fellowship involves obeying his commands. You remember there, it's not enough just to say that you know God. You've got to keep his commandments. And then we left off a couple of weeks ago that true fellowship and the fifth affirmation of assurance is loving one another that we are called to love one another. Now, it's possible that as we come to the text in 2.12 through verse 14, that after John's cross-examination, maybe it caused some to doubt. If you, if you will, look back at chapter 2, verse 11. He says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I mean, maybe some as he's come off that, if you hate your brothers, you're not in the light. And it's caused some to doubt. And maybe some as he was putting that argument together in chapter 2 about obeying the commands of God, maybe some of them begin to think, what if, what if they do sin? And, or here in verse 11, what if they don't love perfectly? Then what? I mean, it's very possible that those to whom he writes became introspective as a result of what he has written, and they needed to be assured. And you may be here even this morning in need 
of assurance. And I really believe the Spirit of God puts the Scriptures together because even though we were talking about those five affirmations of assurance, John once again is going to remind us of assurance. And if that's the case, then you've come to the right place. So John makes clear here as we walk into verse 12 that the hard-hitting declarations were not directed at them to cause them to doubt their salvation. They were written actually to assure them of their salvation. Let me read the text for you, a very interesting text in verses 12 through 14. And certainly you've seen this before. And certainly if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you probably have a thought of what you think this is. And I want you to listen carefully. Pick up, follow along as I read verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now you'll note there that that scripture comes right prior to the famous one in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we have this amazing statement in 12 through 14 through that important piece in 15 through 17. I mean, six different times... In just three verses, John tells his readers why he has written to them. Some of the reasons are, he tells them in verse 12, because your sins are forgiven. He writes to them and to the fathers because you know God. He writes to the young men, it says here, because they have overcome the evil one. Now, I really believe that this fits wonderfully in the context because it falls right on the heels of those who have departed from the fellowship in verse 11. And so he turns again to assure his readers because he is absolute confident of their standing before God. Now let me just lay a little bit of the groundwork and I'll get to the points in just a moment, okay? The the statements are set out in lines of poetry actually in the original language. There are six statements here. And they are arranged in two sets. And each of these statements consists of three parallel affirmations. If you're just looking at it from a structure standpoint, from a broad category here, there's an assertion that he makes, there's an addressee that he writes to, and then there's an affirmation that he gives. The assertion is, he says it this way, that I am writing. And you can see that. Or he says, I write. That's the verb. Then there's an addressee who he writes to. He's writing to children. He's writing to young men. And he's writing to fathers. That's the noun. And then thirdly, there's an affirmation. And you can see it if you glance down in your Bible. There's six of them. He says in 12, because your sins are forgiven. Because, verse 13, you know him. Verse 13, because you have overcome. Verse 13, because you know the Father. There's six affirmations that he makes. Now, you might ask, why does John repeat the same phrases 
twice. He keeps saying, I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing. And then did you catch it? He says, I write, I write, I write. He changes the tense of the verb from what we would say the present tense to the aorist tense to I am writing to I write. Now, the fact that John repeats his exhortation here has baffled scholars. And maybe you've read this and said, why does he repeat this? And it's baffled scholars for 2,000 years. And there's many pages written on the repetitious nature of this section. A few scholars have said that the reason John is repeating himself is he's referring to something that he wrote in a previous letter that we do not have. But I would think that it would be a strange way to do it, and that's a hypothesis. We don't know what that letter is, and we wouldn't know that he would have written that letter. But I think he simply repeats this truth here for emphasis. He is emphasizing the truth of our assurance once again to us. And so by the emphatic reminder of who they are and by the emphatic reminder of what God has done, John provides the trust basis for them to live in the victory that's already been won. Now, one of the key questions, and again, we're just building a little background here, is when John addresses these believers, who is he talking about? Now, you would say, well, it's obvious who he's talking about. He's, he's talking to children, he's talking to fathers, and he's talking to young men. But the question would be asked, is John addressing three distinct groups? The, the main question is, is he portraying three different levels of spiritual maturity? Is, is that what you think? That would be a, a common thought here okay in other words he's addressing not something literal here he's addressing people in a spiritual category in a range of maturity so when he writes to children people think well he's writing to young christians when he writes to fathers he's writing to those who are mature in the faith and when he writes to young men he is writing to those who have overcome the evil one if you look at the text in that way, you would say that he is speaking metaphorically. And I would probably think that if I did a survey, and many of you have grown up in the life of the church, would say, yes, that's what he's doing. He's pushing these categories of people. He, wants the, he writes to the children. They know the simple truth. Their sins are forgiven. He writes to the young men because they've, they've overcome the evil one, but they need to be strengthened. But the, the young men are a little bit stronger, spiritually speaking, than the children. And then at the top of the list is the fathers, and those are the ones who are most mature. That's what many people think this passage is all about. However, I would remind you that throughout this entire epistle, John calls you and me and all of those who read his letter children. So I don't think he's really getting into a category here of infant state-like maturity or baby Christians. I think he's just talking to all. Let me show you. I mean, you'll note there that he uses that phrase in 2.12, I am writing to you little children. But look in your Bible in 1 John, all of these, 2.1. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
He's not talking about a category. He's just writing to the people who are reading this letter. Look over at chapter 2 in verse 18. Here, when he warns them about the, the coming Antichrist, he says in 2.18, Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrist have come. But he writes to children. Look down in chapter 2 in verse 28, where he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Glance down in chapter 3 in verse 7. He's writing to all of us here. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Look at chapter 3 in verse 18. He says, little children, writing to all, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If you go down to chapter 4, verse 4, he says there, Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And then finally, there's one more. Go all the way to chapter 5. He closes the book with this one as an admonition to all. Little children in 521, keep yourselves from idols. So understand as we walk back now into chapter 2 when he addresses little children, if you're putting that in a spiritual category, you're beyond the author's impression. When he writes his little children, remember the Apostle John is probably close to 90. And he's writing here at the end of his life, 60 years, close to 60 years after the life of Christ. And as he picks up his pen, he's writing to those in the faith and he simply identifies them as little children. And so it's a reference by John to identify not a category of maturity, but those who are believers. In fact, look at 1 John 3.1. You know this statement where it says there, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, what? Children of God. And so we are. Verse 2, beloved we are God's children. So you can see it very clearly there. In fact, if you go over, just turn right a little bit to 3 John, just to the right, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, a statement that you know, and again, this is a reference to all believers, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. But he's not talking about aged children there. He's talking about those who are believers. So this designation in 1 John 2.12 is a designation on a broad stroke that embraces all believers. It is a reference by John, listen, as well as by Jesus in the Gospels and the apostles that points to their children in the faith and not necessarily as a reference to a stage of spiritual maturity. You don't have to turn there, but do you remember John's gospel in John 1.12 when he says, as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. That is a classic reference all over the New Testament to speak of believers. So with this in mind, okay, got to follow the logic, it seems unlikely 
that John means little children are spiritual infants in the knowledge of God, they kind of know that their sins are forgiven. I think it just kind of downplays the strength of even your sins are forgiven. In fact, I want to show you something. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Is it not interesting in verse 13, like you see it in 12, I'm writing to you little children here because your sins are forgiven. But have you seen at the end of verse 13? He says, I write to you children because you know the what? The Father. And so these are used interchangeably, aren't they? In fact, actually what John is saying, and I'm trying to convince you of this, what he says to these believers, he says to all of you. In other words, what's true of one category is true of another category, okay? So he says to children, because you know the Father, a very similar address given to the fathers. In fact, would you not agree that these qualities are for all believers, not just this particular stage of growth? Now, listen, I also know... And you also know there are some other texts in the New Testament that address levels of spiritual immaturity, okay, or maturity, such as in Hebrews 5. Remember when the writer there said, by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come, you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of the milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. And then the writer says, but solid food is for the mature who because of their practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Sometimes when you see that phrase, a babe, then he's talking there in terms of maturity. But at least in 1 John, he, these are clearly set forth um, as encouragement and he uses that phrase, little children, as a descriptive phrase in reference to all believers. In fact, just a little side note, and I don't want to make much of it for you men and women who are scholars in the text. He does use a different word in the original language for children. He says, I'm writing to you little children. But he writes uh, down at the end of 13, I write to you children because you know the Father. He uses technon and he uses pideon in the, in the Greek language. And some people want to make a difference between those two, but I see no such difference given. I think they're just simply truths that we have here, and there's little difference, if any, between the words, okay? So from that point and from that designation of little children, John then, and I'm just, this is background, addresses two different groups of people. So it's fair to say he's not talking about three. He's at least talking about two. You've got children in reference to everybody. He then addresses the young men, and then he addresses the fathers, okay? Now, I know that you know that young men and fathers are masculine terms, but they reflect certainly a first century way of speaking, and those terms do not exclude females. So all that we say today here is for men and women. Now, look at the text again, the second division. He says there in verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers, okay? Then you, you think, okay, fathers. Well, in the scripture, it either speaks of a literal father in Ephesians 6, 4, or sometimes in the scripture, a father in the gospels particularly 
is to those who were older and those who had died. Sometimes we called them the fathers. They were people who were older and people who had died. In fact, it's used that way in Luke 1.55 and 2 Peter 3.4. But the word fathers is also used in the scripture as a title of respect for those who were older in their generation in Acts 7.2 and in Acts 22.1. Now, I think it's interesting that that term father is used in 1 Timothy. In, in 1 Timothy 5.1, Paul told Timothy to not rebuke an older man harshly. He said there, but appeal to him as if he were your father. And here, father is applied, is obvious, to those who are older than Timothy, but not necessarily does it mean that they were more mature in the faith than Timothy. In fact, I probably think they weren't. Timothy was probably, he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And I think when Paul told Timothy, you know, appeal to them as a father, he was to appeal to them because of their age and because of their season. It simply meant that they were more advanced in years than young Timothy. So if we look at 1 Timothy 5.1 as a key cost reference, then we can safely say that John here addresses fathers as he does in 1 John chapter 2, as those who were advanced in years, though not necessarily more mature in the faith, okay? It could mean that, but I don't want to think it always means that. So he writes to children, all believers. He writes to the fathers, those who were advanced in years and possibly advanced in faith. And then thirdly, he writes to the young men, he writes to the young men, and whenever you find that phrase in other scriptures, young men always refers to young men. In fact, in Peter, it says in 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. And he's not talking about maturity again. He's just talking about those who are younger ought to be subject to their elders. You certainly remember Paul when he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your, what? Youth. He's not talking about his maturity. He's actually talking about his age. So let me pull this together. When John addresses fathers, when he addresses young men, he is addressing the older and younger people who make up the children of God. In other words, he is exhorting believers from youngest to the oldest in the flock. If you take the passage this way, then it does not refer then, do you understand, to younger men who have a greater spiritual maturity than children because the children only know their sins are forgiven. But the young men, man, they've overcome the evil one. But when you attain to the status of fathers then you're really spiritually mature. Now, I think what John is doing here is simply describing the older and the younger in faith that belong to John's community of children. That's what he's saying. As one theologian said, quote, the designation of fathers and the young men do not imply to greater or lesser degrees of spiritual maturity but greater and lesser age levels, okay? 
I mean, perhaps we should not be so over-dogmatic about the meaning of these terms. He certainly seems to be addressing the young and the old, the physical age, while at the same time referring to the spiritual privileges that belong to all believers at any stage in their growth. So you say, then what does he want to communicate to us? Well, now he's going to lay out for us the implications of assurance. He is writing under the Spirit of God as though if this word was penned today. I believe that. I mean, I believe he wrote it, but I believe as I preach it, it is an oracle from God. Not that I'm inspired, but the text is inspired. And he's writing for this purpose to assure you. He is writing to you this morning to encourage you that you indeed are in the fellowship with God. Now, we have charted the false teachers and the Gnostic heresy. He's writing to us. He's writing to those of the household of God. And what he does is provide three powerful reminders to encourage the assurance of believers. It is a reminder, if you will, to remember who you are and what you have been given. Okay? First, he wants to remind you, and I'm just going to trust the word that this is going to minister to you. Because we've already said these things somewhat. And John will repeat them again. But he wants to remind you, number one, that you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Look at the text. Let's pick it up in verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you little children. Okay, that's to all of us. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. This morning, as you looked at those five affirmations, as we went through them, John wants to remind you that you're forgiven. He's already said this, has he not? Look back in chapter 1 and verse 7. He said there, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so he writes to declare to us, your sins are forgiven. And it's written in such a way here in 2.12 that it is past forgiveness that he's talking about that remains effective. John here is including all believers and not just a separate category of spiritual maturity. Now we are forgiven, look at the text again in verse 12, for his name's sake. In other words, you say, what does that mean? For his glory. In other words, his name is all that he is. And in the scripture, a name indicates nature. In other words, God forgives us and that he does on the account of his name. Now, there's some question, what do you think in verse 12, when he says your sins are forgiven for his name's sake? What name is that? And whose name is that? I certainly understand Psalm 2511 says, For your sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. There in Psalm, it's God. The writer Jeremiah said this in 14.7, Though our iniquities 
testify against us. Act, O Lord, for your name's sake. And there's other scriptures that speak of his namesake being God the Father. However, I believe here, it is most likely the name of Jesus, his son. And I believe that in the context. Look over at chapter 3 in verse 23. Here, John said, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. There, we're to believe in his name. Look over again at 1 John 5, verse 13, that famous text. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So both 3.23 and 5.13 make it clear that the name stands for the person of Jesus Christ. Here, God forgives our sin because of Jesus Christ, the one whom he sent to atone for our sin. So if I put it all together, let me just remind you. The reason that you can be assured is because your forgiveness does not rest in your righteousness. It does not rest in your merit. It does not rest in your deeds. It does not rest in your activity in any way. It rests in the forgiveness of God's name and his beloved son, Jesus Christ. He is the anchor of our soul. And so John once again comes back to this. Where does assurance lie? Assurance lies in the character of God and in the character of a son, in, in their name, if you will. And because of that name, you can be assured of your forgiveness. I think he's just trying to move us away from thinking about ourselves. If you think about yourself, you'll never have assurance, will you? If your assurance is conditioned on what you do and how you act and, and did you do enough, you're going to lose it. But he reminds us this, that you have assurance because we've been forgiven for his name's sake. Do you remember the whole context of the gospel in Matthew 1.21 when it says, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save their people from their, what, sins. He's the one who removes your sin. Remember when John the Baptist set eyes on Jesus Christ, he's called him the Lamb of God who takes away the, what, the sin of the world. Romans ten thirteen says, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be, what, saved. And so here, assurance lies not even in what we're doing. It lies in the forgiveness, relies on the forgiveness of sins and that we have because of his name. In fact, look over just for a moment to Acts. This was certainly the, the apostolic preaching of the New Testament. Look to Acts chapter 2 just for a second. Let me just show you just a couple of references that highlight this name. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter said to them, preaching, Repent, 2.38, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for, what? The forgiveness of sins. Listen, assurance isn't with a priest in a booth. Assurance is the forgiveness that Almighty God grants through His Son, Jesus Christ as a reflection of all that he is 
And if you've placed your faith in Christ, then rest in that assurance. In fact, look over in Acts chapter 10. There's another statement. I mean, it just couldn't be clearer than this. In Acts chapter 10, again, Peter preaching in 1043, where he says, To him, all the peoples bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his, what, name. And so here, as you go back to 1 John chapter 2, he's already stated there that he is the propitiation for our sins. And so the curse of sin has been removed in the cross of Christ. Now, remember we said a couple of weeks ago, let me just touch on this. Remember when it says there, that you are forgiven for his name's sake. Remember we talked about the timing of those, that biblical issue of forgiveness. And here I really believe he's talking about that permanent, ultimate forgiveness. Remember some weeks back, we recognized that biblical forgiveness always runs along two trajectories in the scripture. I mean, the Bible, one, first I would say, teaches that all of our sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, our eternal destiny is sealed, okay, at the moment of justifying faith. When you came to Christ in that moment... In that act where God declared you righteous, he forgave you at that moment instantaneously, never to be repeated, forgave you past, present, and future sins. He forgave you all your sins. But the depth of intimacy, the depth of fellowship and joy is certainly affected adversely when we fail to confess and repent of daily sin. But our eternal destiny has already and forever been determined. And I think that's what John's getting at right here. He's saying, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. And so we recognize, do you remember that? The distinction between the eternal forgiveness and the guilt of our sin, that is ours the moment we embrace Christ in faith, and the temporal forgiveness that we receive on a daily basis that enables us to pursue intimacy with the Father when we confess our sin. But I think here John writes, he's writing, you can see it in a perfect, it's called a perfect tense. He's writing because it's already been accomplished in the past, but it's continuing to have a present effect, okay? And so he writes to assure us of our forgiveness, well, look on. There's a second reminder. He says there, I'm not only writing to you children because you're forgiven for his namesake, but I'm writing to you fathers, he says, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, such knowledge would be true of every believer, but perhaps this should be an older man, an older woman, who has a deepening in his or her faith and a knowledge of God himself. But here the text says you know him. And again, it's in the perfect tense, suggesting past knowledge which remains and grows. And it speaks of an established relationship with God 
which is still now progressing and deepening. And so John does a masterful job here because there were those amongst the Gnostics who said that they knew God, but they didn't obey him. And I think John here calls them out and he commends these true believers. He says, because you know God. He says, you're characterized by your mature knowledge of a person, not so much an inferential knowledge about him. And he says, you've known him and you continue to know him. And this is your progressive experience you've, you've gained of those who have walked with Christ and those who have abided with Christ. Now, who have they known? Look at the text there. It says, you've known him who is from the beginning. And is that God or is that Christ? Well, we taught in 1 John 1, 1, it takes us back to the preexistence and eternal deity of Jesus Christ. And so they know him, they know God, but they know Christ. And they've understood that though Christ was born, if you will, and became a man, he is the one who is preexistent before all time. So here's what John says. He says, listen, be assured of your salvation. He says, you're forgiven. And he says, you know him. And then third and finally, look what he says to the young men. He says, you have overcome. You have overcome. He says in verse 13, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You'll down in verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. He adds that. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He tells these young men, just a category of maybe younger believers, that they're strong. And it's a reference here, obviously, to their spiritual strength, not their physical strength. And again, it's in the perfect tense that they're strong. They've been strong. But the thought is they continue to be strong. It kind of reminds me of Ephesians 6.10 where it says to be strong in the Lord. It reminds me of that passage in Isaiah where young men, though they stumble and struggle and they feel weak, they will mount up and renew like an eagle and grow. But they're strong here. Look at verse 14. Here's why they're strong. It says at the end of 14, because the word of God abides in you. In other words, not only is Christ abiding in them, but because his word is presently abiding in them. In other words, here's assurance again. Your sins are forgiven. You know him. And now you've overcome, but you overcome because that word is already remaining in you. And again, there's all those references in the New Testament about abiding in Christ. And you can understand it's exact opposite with the false believers. Look back at 110. Remember what John said there in 110? He said, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is what? Not in us. But here, these young men are strong and they're strong because they're remaining and abiding in the word of God. And it says, look lastly, that they have overcome the evil one. The evil one. Now, you'll, you'll see it there. What, what is that? The evil one. It's used a number of different times in this book. Look over in chapter 3 and verse 12. We would not be like Cain, who was of 
the evil one and murdered his brother. Look over at chapter 5 and verse 18. There it's used again. We know that everyone who is born of God uh, does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. It's obvious in all these references they refer to the devil. And here he's writing about Satan, and he's saying these young men, these young believers have overcome. And again, it's in the perfect tense. It's a past fact. They've already overcome, but they're continuing to overcome and have results. Now, this doesn't mean that the battle is over, but rather having gone to battle against our enemy, we are now already assured of the outcome. You say, how does a young man overcome the evil one? Look over back in chapter 4. Here's how. How do you overcome? He says, little children, he says, you are from God and have overcome them. In other words, a young man overcomes because of his union with God, because he's in God, because he's in union with Christ. He's from God. Look at verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. And so we overcome by our union with God. Look over at chapter 5 in verse 4. It says there, for everyone who has been born of God, in other words, just if you're a believer, who's ever been born of God, overcomes the world And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we overcome because we are from God. We overcome because Jesus, Paul said in Colossians 2.15, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them and in him. In other words, he overcame by virtue of his death and by virtue of his resurrection of the cross and by our union now with him, we are overcomers. And so his victory is ours and he is the one who will protect us going forward. And I really wonder if if John just wanted to remind us of this truth before we get to the next verse next week. When he says, do not love the world. I think before we get into that, he wants to assure us that we're a people that have already overcome. We're a people that are already victorious because we've been born of God. In fact, look at the end of chapter 5, and we'll be all done here. In verse 18, it's very interesting. It says that we know, 518, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not, what? Touch him. So listen, we overcome by our faith in Christ, by our union in Christ, by his victory from the grave, and by his victory over the evil one, we have overcome. And so he just writes to remind us, doesn't he? Here's assurance for all. Listen, let me remind you. Your sins are forgiven. You know him who is from the beginning. And you have overcome the evil one. And if you look at your life, 
and you see those, not perfectly, but in the direction of your life, then rest assured you would be able to sing with the songwriter, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of heaven divine. But listen, be assured of those things, and then you will also be able to walk forward in the joy of the Lord. Let's pray together. Maybe just as you bow your head, I want to trust the Spirit of God. Could be that you've come in and you needed to know where you stand, and I'd ask you, where do you stand? Has Jesus Christ forgiven your sins? Do you know him? Do you know God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And have you overcome? It could be that as you look at your life, you'd say, that's not true of me in any way. If, if that's the case, then bow your knee, confess your sin, and cling to the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf and ask him to wash away your sins and be forgiven. But if you're here and you're in Christ and you're assured that your sins are forgiven, that you've known him and his son, Jesus Christ, and if you've overcome the evil one and you look and you say, not perfectly, but I have had victory and I do see growth, then John writes to assure you of your future status with God. 